Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the honor of speaking with Eric Cressy. Eric is the president and co-founder of Cressy Sports Performance. Eric has worked with clients from youth sports professional Olympic ranks, but is best known for his extensive work with baseball players. More than 100 professional players train with him each offseason. Eric has authored numerous journal articles, published six books, and co-created seven video resources that have been sold around the world. He is a prolific presenter and significant thought leader in the world of human performance, and he has served as a consultant to many professional and collegiate sports organizations and private companies. Eric publishes a free blog and newsletter at his website, ericcressy.com, and has a podcast at EliteBaseballPodcast.com. He is also a dedicated father and husband, and I am honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let's start at the beginning, sir. Um, when you were a little boy, what did you dream of being? Uh, that's funny. I think probably like everybody else, I wanted to be a professional baseball player, or at least all the people I deal with on a daily basis. But, um, you know, for me, I was a fantastically mediocre athlete. And uh, those who those who can do and those who can't coach. Um, so that's that kind of how I wound up in this discipline. What was your attraction to baseball? What, what, what about the sport made made you fall in love with it? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. My, my mom jokes that I was always bound to wind up back in baseball because I actually taught myself to read off of baseball cards. I would watch games. Um, and she talked about even when I was young that, you know, the Cubs used to play on WGN and they played a lot of day games. So a lot of times it was time to nap. Like I would fall asleep on the couch watching a Cubs game. Even though I wasn't really a Cubs fan, it was just what was on. Um, so I would watch this week in baseball and then I would know the players' names and their their, their faces. So when I looked at the, uh, the baseball card, it was really as simple as matching up what I knew and what I didn't know and learning about home runs and RBIs and batting averages and things like that. And uh, I'm not sure that was the only reason I learned how to read, but I'm sure it was, it was a good practice <laughs> in the process. Makes for a good story. Yeah. yeah absolutely. You, grew up, you grew up where in Chicago or is that where you're? No, talking? I was born in Southern Maine. Actually, I was nowhere near yeah. Chicago. Um, so how, how come but, Chicago became a love of yours? Well, they didn't. Uh, it's just that the Cubs played on WGN and the Cubs okay. uh, didn't have lights at Wrigley Field for a long time. So they played a lot of day games. Um, so as a little kid, you didn't get to you know watch a bunch of 7 p.m. games because it was bedtime. So instead, I watched a lot of one o'clock games um, in the National League. And so, I, you know, I, I saw a lot of players that I probably otherwise wouldn't have seen. But I, I didn't didn't lead to a rigid Cubs adherence. We do have a lot of guys that we train who are with the Cubs now. But I was just kind of I mean, I love baseball was baseball to me. Talk about the influence of your parents. Were your, your parents uh, big advocates for sports or were they more uh, big advocates for school or co-mingling or what, what was what was the influence of uh, on you growing up? 
Yeah, I think it was it was co-mingling um, is a good way. To, my mom's a, a, at the time was a high school teacher and um, she's now principal of my old high school. Um, my dad was self-employed. Um, they were in a, a school bus distri- uh, distributorship. So Thomas built buses. My dad's the kind of the Northeast distributor for them, which is a, a division of Daimler Chrysler. So, um, you know, I, I think it was great because I got a blend of, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the teacher life, um, you know, you got a mama who's around all summer. And on top of that, she, she, you know, challenges you in different ways academically in the right way. Um, and then a father, I get to see his work ethic and, you know, the challenges of entrepreneurship that I think prepared me for it down the road. But, um, you know, I, I, I give them a lot of credit. We didn't have a lot of stuff. Like we weren't, you know, affluent by any stretch of the imagination, but I never felt like we were wanting, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like we always had a lot of attention from mom and dad and, um, that, you know, we were, we were put in a position to be successful, whether that was, you know, from a sports standpoint or from, you know, academic stuff like that. So, um, you know, what I think was really good for me on the athletic side of things was, um, our first house growing up, I, I lived in it in, uh, through second grade. We lived next door to a church. And so the church had a big parking lot, uh, next door that was only used on Sunday mornings and the rest of the week, it was just a giant grass field. Um, so the, the churchyard became basically like the you know to play every single sport imaginable and and my neighborhood actually kicked out a, a ton of really good athletes who have also gone on to become college coaches um mm. inter- interesting enough my hometown is kind of known as a hotbed for coaching talent um, really? and, a, and a lot of it started yeah actually in the the churchyard next to my house where we played every single sport imaginably until our parents yelled at us to come in for dinner <laughs> That's awesome. I want to, I want to circle back on your mom being a teacher. It's kind of funny um, in speaking to a lot of different people on this podcast, it's Mm -hmm. in the performance industry. It's kind of weird how many of them had teachers as parents Mm -hmm. and um, how, how did having a mom as a teacher influence you both in the, was it hard and was it easy or made it easier in some sense because you had somebody you knew what you were up to or, or was you had to live up to in some sense. Yeah. I, I don't think I ever felt the pressure of having a, a parent as a teacher. Um, you know, I certainly like a lot of kids, like got my chops busted. If I got an A on a paper, they're like, Oh, it's just cause your mom's a teacher. She probably writes your papers for you. And that was never the case. My mom was actually my homeroom teacher, believe it or not. I never had her in class, but she would see my report cards before I got them. She was the one that handed them out. Um, but I mean, I, I, I always felt like I was pretty intrinsically motivated. Um, and that was probably a function of how they handled things when I was younger. So that I never, I never needed her to step on the gas pedal to, to get me moving, um, mm. when I was older. And, um, in a lot of ways she, you know, she, she prepared me a lot. Um, what I, I looked at too, is, uh, I, I had two things that were awesome is one, I, because of what she did, I was always around books. Um, mm. she's, she's, she taught English. Um, so, you know, we were exposed to a lot of the classics at a young age, even if it was just her talking about the unit she was teaching in class. Um, but I would go to school, I actually got on the bus at, at school. So I would ride with her usually to work at like seven o'clock. Um, I'd usually have breakfast at school and kind of hang out in her room. And then the school bus would pick me up at you know eight, eight fifteen, whatever it was. So I would hang out with a lot of high school kids when I was a little guy. Um, and then, you know, I'd be just in her room. So I, I constantly saw kids studying, um, you know, in the morning, coming in for extra help, stuff like that. I, I saw a genuine side of her where she, you know, when kids were going through tough times, I'd, you know, we've had kids who have stayed at our house. We've had you know, scenarios when she would, you know, feed kids who didn't have it. She'd get, she'd have breakfast waiting for them when they came to school. They'd, mm. they'd come get food from her desk or something like that. So I, I saw that side, but I also saw like how underappreciated teachers were. Like, I, mm. I mean, you look at the, what they were paid per hour, like she corrected papers every night in bed. 
Um, you know, there's just, and, and it's even more extensive now that she's, you know, in administration where you know, her phone rings if there's a student that's suicidal now, like it goes directly to the principal if there's a anonymous tip. So it's, it's very much a 24 hour profession, even if you get summers off technically. So, um, I, I think it was a blessing. Um, and you know, she challenged me to, to be better and I mean, you know, it worked out well. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you go into, um, you know, your high school schooling and things like that, and you're playing sports. Um, what, what is the influencing factor for where you go career wise? Or, or do you discover that when you're like, how do you go through that process of discovering what you end up doing? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's actually a, a injuries are often a blessing in disguise. I was a, a soccer and tennis player. So I had a fall spring split. Um, so in the, in the winter time, I was an everything guy. I would play indoor soccer. I would play indoor tennis. Um, I would, you know, play pickup hoops, like street hockey, you name it, anything to kind of fill that void between, you know, basically Thanksgiving and the, you know, the first couple of weeks in March. Um, and, you know, we'd sled, do all that kinds of stuff outside too. But um, what actually was probably the biggest blessing in disguise was uh, I had a really bum shoulder from playing tennis um and um basically dealt with it kind of on and off throughout high school i was i was all state as a senior in high school and got recruited to play in college but um you know probably wasn't in the cards from a a shoulder standpoint and um i had worked at a tennis club for eight summers growing up Um, i strung rackets gave lessons filled in on doubles matches you know swept in line courts things like that um and it just so happened that you know in the last summer you know during my undergrad years um so what had happened was i had gone to uh basically Babson college out of high school thinking I was going to be an accountant. And about two years in, I realized that I was probably a lot more interested in my training than I was in, you know, basically the economics and accounting classes. So, um, I wound up transferring, did a double major in exercise science and sports management at the university of new England. Um, and then was accepted to go to grad school at the university of Connecticut. Um, so that was 2003 in the summer of 03, my shoulder was about as bad as it could possibly be. Um, you know, it ached all the time. Uh, and so I went to a doc and, we got some imaging done and sure enough, you know, I had a, a pretty good undersized or undersurface rotator cuff tear. Um, so he scheduled me for surgery in that summer before I, I headed off to grad school. And we basically said, you know, I'm going to do it the first day I get back from, from the first semester. So I'll have time to have surgery, be in my sling for a couple weeks, do initial rehab stuff just so that I can at least get back to writing so that when I get back to school, I won't miss a beat from a class standpoint. Um, so it basically gave me that first semester of grad school, you know, not just to start sorting out my career plans of whether I want to be in strength and conditioning research or coaching or something else, um, but also to just experiment with my own rehab, um, try some different things that I hadn't done. And um, that was when I got exposed to some good manual therapy techniques. I changed my, my training around structural balance and, you know, avoided exercises that hurt. And sure enough, I, I called my surgeon on Halloween of that year and told him I was feeling good and I didn't need the surgery. So that was 16 years ago and I still haven't had the shoulder operated on. Um, in mm. fact, it's probably my better shoulder if you, if you really think about it. Um, and I've had, you know, a follow-up imaging that's shown that the, the, the cuff tear has actually progressed. Like it's more retracted and extensive than it was before. There's a you know cartilage defect in my humeral head now. So I, I have a structurally worse shoulder, but it feels better 16 years later. And I'm, I'm 38 years old. So I, you'd think I'd be more banged up, but it just kind of speaks to, you know, you aren't who your MRI is and you, know, you have to <laughs> make sure you, uh, you know, you look at movement more than just a diagnosis. You, um, you know, I don't, you and I don't know each other that well. We bounced into each other a couple of times, but, um, you strike me from the conversation already as a bit of a fastidious person. Would you describe yourself as that? And if so, where does that come from? Yeah, I'm, I'm a very, very, uh, OCD, you could say. Um, in fact, OCD was something that worked against me. I had kind of an eating disorder in my late, 
uh, teen years, you know, exercise addiction type thing when I hadn't necessarily learned to harness it for the better. Um, when I get focused on something, I get very locked in. Um, you know, like Tony Gentilcore was my roommate back in, you know, 05 to 07 or so. And um, Tony would be like, dude, you just like close the door to your room and like you come out and you've written like seven chapters of a new book. Like it's, it's crazy. And, you know, I, that was who I was when I got locked in, even, even going back to when I was a little kid. Um, you know, I set my mind to things and I, I get them done. Um, that can be a great thing. It can also be a really bad thing if you, if you don't turn it, uh, basically harness it in the right direction. So, you know, I learned how to, how to utilize that to my advantage in terms of, you know, my training practices and how we run our businesses and things like that. Um, you know, I went eight years without a miss, missing a planned training session during my powerlifting career. So, um, yes, you could say fastidious, you could say OCD. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not too sensitive about it. You can call it what it is, but, um, you know, my wife, oh. I have a pretty undiagnosed ADD, um, but we've, we've learned to make it work a little bit better for us. Well, it seems that, like you said, it's been um, something that's helped you be successful. It's interesting to hear you unpack it a little bit on the on the negative side, but uh, and to recognize that, um, you know, you're you're 38 and you've had a pretty pretty powerful career already in the things that you've achieved and done. Some most of the time, people are, at your age have not accumulated the type of um, resources and work that you've done. What do you attribute that to? Is it the same thing? Is it this kind of um, you have a central need to achieve is that where it comes from in your in your heart and your soul okay quick break here to tell you about reconditioning reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatments and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminating issues that stand in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level 2 goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program. It becomes deeply considerate of the context of that program and the environments of the preparation. Finally, our Reconditioning Mastery Mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home. It allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances, irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see when our next courses are being held and when our next mastery mentorship is starting. Become a reconditioning specialist and join the reconditioning revolution. Okay, we're back. Yeah, I think, um, you know, deep down, I'm an athlete at heart. I'm a very competitive person. And I think, you know, entrepreneurship, career development, those things, if you if you apply a competitive component to it in terms of how you challenge yourself, similar to, you know, getting involved in powerlifting or anything else like that, um, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm a, uh, an optimist in a lot of ways, but I'm a pessimist when it comes to my business, mm-hmm. um, you know, how I want to grow it and what I want to do. And um, I think what I've done pretty well is set very, very clear objectives, but more importantly, I've been, um, you know, done a good job of acknowledging that there are a lot of sacrifices to achieve those objectives. So, you know, on the first of every year, I have a list of, you know, goals, everything from financial to continuing education to productivity things, 
Um, you know, so it's a collection of, you know, consuming and producing, you know, I want to make sure that I've, you know, covered, you know, 25 books over the course of the year and you know that and I do this many Instagram Q and A's and, you know, this many podcasts we run, how many podcasts I listen to, what books I want to do, what revenues we want to do at our facility in Florida versus Massachusetts versus my consulting entity, how many seminars I want to do. So I'm a, I'm a big meticulous goal setter. Mm-hmm. very, very quantifiable in, nat- quantifiable in nature in that regard. Um, but more importantly, I'm, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I have to step away from other things to achieve those. So, you know, dating all the way back, like I didn't spend a penny on alcohol in my college career. You know, that's, that's four years of undergrad and two years of college. Um, you know, like there's an opportunity cost, right? If, if you spend a dollar on alcohol back in 2003 and here we are, you know, basically 16 years later, that money's going to double. That's actually $4 in savings for me at age 38. And that's what allowed me to invest my life savings at age 27 to, to start a gym um, and to get out of student loan debt early on and to put myself in a position financially to, to do a lot of the stuff I do now where I can you know, have a little bit more autonomy in terms of selecting the things I like to do as opposed to just what I feel like I have to do from a financial standpoint. So um, I think a lot of those decisions early on um, have, have been really impactful for setting up what we do now. So tell me about the discovery in college of, you know, what like the, the performance profession and how you went from student to this yeah. is what I want to do professionally. Yeah, actually, uh, I give a ton of credit to a guy named Brajesh Patel. Um, Brajesh is now head of strength and conditioning at Quinnipiac University. Um, when I first got to UConn um, in the fall of 2003, um, you know, I, I went to my first strength and conditioning class and, you know, got introduced to some of the people around there. And um, there's a guy named Pat Dixon. Uh, Pat went on to, you know, basically he was a graduate assistant strength and conditioning coach. He'd been a track athlete at UConn. And Pat went on, worked at St. John's and uh, was assistant athletic director. And now he actually works for a, for a supplement company. And we've stayed in touch. But Pat was like, Hey man, you know, I, you know, great to meet you. Give me a campus tour. He's like, come down to the weight room anytime you want to, you know, come, come hang out. And so I went down with Pat to the weight room and, um, there's a guy named Brajesh Patel there. And Brajesh was one of the graduate assistant strength coach. He was a year ahead of me. So, I mean, I was 22 or 23 at the time he was 23 or 24. And, um, you know, he was a guy who had been in that weight room for years. And, um, I had just had my first article published on T nation. I was still feeling out what I wanted to do. He's like, Hey, I read your article. I really enjoyed it. Love you have it around. And he's like, I got, I got baseball tomorrow morning at five 30. If you want to come. And it was like, I, it was kind of like he was testing me, you know, as I look back on it, but like, I was like, hell yeah, I'll be there. Um, and what people don't realize like his early morning conditioning, like in, at the university of Connecticut is it's, it's not easy to get to, um, you know, for one thing, it's, you know, get up at 5am. I lived off campus. So I had to be on campus parked and everything. But the thing is the university of Connecticut is, I, I believe it's the highest point between New York and Boston. So it's an absolute wind tunnel. So if you have a, like a bad day in the winter, like it'll be 18 inches of snow with negative 50 degree wind chill and it just destroys you. So when you commit to doing some like 5:30am stuff at the time, I think that was September. So it wasn't a big one, but we went to some soccer conditioning stuff like where it was that early and it was not easy to get to. But, um, I think he was testing me and I, I showed up the next morning at five 30. Um, and sure enough, like I, I fell in love with it. I watched how he controlled the room. Um, you know, how he, he had so much spring in his step while he coached, how he was meticulous about looking at shin angles on every bit of change of direction stuff. I bought, I saw how his athletes bought into, you know, his interactions with them. Um, you know, it was just, it was, a, it was a very powerful experience. And, and, and I look back, it was probably one of the most influential, you know, 90 minutes of my career, just seeing him do that. And it was instantly like, man, I got to get more of this. And, and mm-hmm. I was really, really fortunate because at the time, uh, basically, you know, we had Pat, 
um, who I got to know when he was involved on track and field and as well as some football stuff, you know, Brajesh had, had not just baseball, but, um, some other programs that he was, uh, I can't remember what other teams he had at the time. Um, and then, uh, also Tina Murray was there. Tina, um, you know, oversaw field hockey, which was a top four program in the country. Um, she also had, you know, men's ice hockey. So, uh, I got to be around Tina. She went on to be, um, director of Olympic sports at Louisville. Um, and then is now with the Sacramento Kings. Um, then Chris West, who actually became my mentor, Chris was also there. He was really involved with, with men's soccer at the time and was very, very cutting edge in a lot of the early like heart rate metrics and things like that. So I, I, I fell into this, this, you know, place where I effectively had like four mentors. Um, and, and Chris actually became the one, um, you know, Tina, I, I got to work with a lot on field hockey and she really gave me some of my first opportunities. And then Chris and I really hit it off. And sure enough, um, you know, it was, I was fortunate to spend a lot of time with him with basketball and soccer during my, my last couple of years. Um, Andrea Hootie was there at the time, um, for my first I think semester or so on campus. Andrea, you know, was phenomenal for the men's and women's basketball programs at UConn. And she went to Kansas and has just moved on to the university of Texas. So UConn was this great breeding ground for coaches. And I just, by showing off that one day at five 30, I, I lucked into it and I got great people that, you know, didn't just, didn't just inspire me to want to try this, but, um, they, you know, just by being around them, they push you to want to be the best you could. Um, and sure enough, you know, Mo Butler was in my class. She was an athlete at UConn. Who's a, you know, still a strength coach at UConn. Matt Herhall was another guy at the time. Matt's a strength and conditioning coach at Columbia. Now, uh, Mike Tufo was another guy in that class. Mike went on to, to, to work at Rutgers. So it really, you know, it kickstarted a great process. And we also had a great human performance lab there that, you know, gave us exposure to the science aspect of it, to see what was going on in a human performance lab. And, and my second year of grad school was actually a, uh, it was funded by the U S army. Um, my grad assistantship was, you know, actually research oriented. So I got to be involved on that side of things as well as my volunteer work in, in the strength conditioning field. So it was, it was awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually interviewing Tina on Friday. I've known Tina for probably 25 years now and she's, uh, she's done really well for herself. She is awesome. One of the absolute best people in the industry. So people will love that. She'll be way more entertaining than I possibly could be too. She's a lot smarter than me. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll find all of your skeletons in your closet. There, entertaining. She'll probably tell you some good ones. <laughs> so what did you, what did you fall in love with about, about being a performance coach? You know, to me, I always come back to you. Coaching is problem solving. You know what I mean? I, I enjoyed that aspect of things. Um, you know, I think I've always been a curious guy and, um, you know, I, I think maybe accounting was, was appealing for a while and that it was very black and white, you know, there were rules and you, you followed them. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of creativity involved. And I liked the fact that, you know, strength edition was both science and art, right? It was, you know, the same coaching cue doesn't work for every athlete. Um, not everybody's going to adapt to the same stress. So, you know, from an assessment standpoint, you're going to have different things thrown your way. Um, you know, for athletes that to, you know, the naked eye might seem very, very similar. So I think I enjoyed that aspect of it. I was just a curious individual. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, also I, you know, knowing I'm a, a little bit of like a closet ADD, it was one of those things where I could see myself bouncing around a lot on a gym floor for the next 40 years. I couldn't necessarily see myself like sitting in an office that, that extended period of time. So, um, and nowadays I, I have a nice mind of both, you know, from an you know, entrepreneurial standpoint, I have necessarily administrative tasks, programming and phone calls and things like that. But, um, you know, I think 
I, I get to, you know, break it up certain times of the year. I'm on the floor way more than others. So like right now we're talking August 20th, like my coaching responsibilities actually aren't crazy right now, but as of, you know, October 1st, they go crazy. Um, and there'll be gangbusters all the way until, you know, February 15th and they settle down for a little bit and then they go crazy from, you know, June 1st up to the you know second week in August. Tell me about that a little bit. The, um, the segue from, you know, really a professional dynamic. And, and I'm, I'm interested in this for myself, but also for the listener, because there's going to, there's some younger guys or some guys who are sort of struggling with, okay, I'm, I'm becoming a strength coach and now I got to earn a living. And how do I do that? What, what, what ignites in you the moving from being a, a professional to an, an entrepreneur? Yeah. And, and, and how do you negotiate that? And, and, and the, the trials and tribulations around that to a degree. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I was initially drawn to entrepreneurship at a very young age. So like I, you know, I bought a racket string machine when I worked at the tennis club and, you know, I would string rackets all summer as a way to make, you know, revenue on top of what I normally did. Um, you know, and even going in, you know, later on, I did online consulting and, and things along those lines. And obviously now it's, you know, it's entrepreneurship across a number of different disciplines, whether it's the two facilities or you know, speaking, writing, product development, um, you know, consulting is another one as well. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that it was like an aha moment somewhere to like going into strength conditioning, but, um, you know, I, I do distinctly remember like one aspect of it was when I, I left the university of Connecticut, um, I kind of had a, a choice to make of, there were some, some college opportunities available on the strength conditioning side. Um, and I chose to go to the private sector, just there was a, a facility that kind of recruited me and I wanted to give it a go and see how it went. And, um, it was around the time Mike Robertson and I made our first DVD. Um, so yeah, this is back when DVDs were actually made. Um, people, people, my computer doesn't even have a DVD drive, but, um, so in 2000, uh, I think it was the fall of 2005, we, we, we recorded Magnificent Mobility in Indianapolis. And then, um, you know, we released it in 2006. And I, I distinctly remember the day when I woke up and I was like, holy crap, like two people in Australia bought our DVD last night. Like somebody on the other side of the world who I've never met and probably never will meet, you know, for whatever reason is interested in what I had to say. Um, and you know, it was kind of like a, you know, in hindsight, I, I kind of identified that I had built some career capital and, you know, was, was in a position where I could help people from afar. Um, so I, you know, I looked at that as a little bit of a responsibility I had as if I have something that I can share and, you know, maybe get through to people and, and assist them in living a better life, then you know, that's something I should do. Um, so I think that's where entrepreneurship was honestly born out of me, but, um, you know, I, I never really anticipated opening a gym. That was the funny thing about it. My wife actually jokes that on our first date, I told her, I, I don't want to open a gym. Um, and sure enough, like six months later I had one. So, um, you know, I think, you know, things often evolve. Um, I can definitely tell you, I don't believe in five and 10 year plans. Mm -hmm. Um, just, you know, you certainly have to have, you know, inklings of what is going to be the case, you know, when, when those time periods roll around. But, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't honestly tell you where, where I'm going to be 10 years from now, just, um, because I know that 10 years ago, uh, from today, I had no idea I was going to be where I am now. I didn't think I'd be training this many baseball players or, you know, getting like, you know, consulting inquiries from major league organizations or anything like that. I would have been happy to train one pro athlete, you know, 10 years ago. And now we have, you know, almost more than we know what to do with, you know, mm -hmm. in, a, in a good way. So, um, it's just, it's one of those things where I think entrepreneurship kind of finds you sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and, so I, the only thing I was just going to say is there was someone that actually asked me on an Instagram Q and a recently something to the effect of, um, talk. It was, it was like, it wasn't even a question. It was a rhetorical statement. It was talk me out of opening a gym. And, and my response was very simple. If it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you, you should really be a hundred percent in. And I was in a position where I felt like I could be a hundred percent in. So that, that was all I needed to know. 
What was the toughest business decision you struggled with making, but then ended up when you look back on it, you wonder why you made, why you struggled with it so much? Yeah. Um, you know, I think without a doubt, the hardest decision I've made is, was opening the second location. Um, in the sense that, um, it was, it was one of those things where we had a lot of players that we had trained between 2007, we opened and 2012, when we kind of started looking at it, um, was, you know, we had players that we would do, do right by, they'd get to the big leagues and then they'd move somewhere else because it was warmer. They didn't want to be in Massachusetts winners, no matter how good the service we offered to them, we were geographically limited. Um, you know, and certainly there were people that are super loyal to us and all that, but you know, if we wanted to expand our reach, um, that was challenging. And I'll, I'll distinctly remember we had a, a day when, um, there were three big league guys who were in town to see me. Two of them were on short term consults. They were there for the week and another was kind of a regular who lived in Massachusetts in the off season. And it was actually a guy named Brandon Gomes. Um, Brandon is, is from Massachusetts originally at the time he was in the major leagues with the Tampa Bay Rays. He's actually now an assistant general manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers. But I remember Brandon sitting in our office and he said, man, he's like, you know, everybody in baseball knows about you. I'm like, what? He's like, you know how much time we spend sitting around in locker rooms, like waiting for BP to start where they're on their iPads, they're reading your articles and your, you know, the, the videos you put out, like everybody knows about you. Like they're just not coming to Hudson, Massachusetts. And it was like, man, like how much, how much bigger and better we could be. And that's, that's your instantly your light bulb goes off and you're like, all right, we need to, we need to expand, 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 especially in the, now, given that we feel like we have the, the competency from the business standpoint to get to that point, but then you automatically have to check yourself and like, wait a second, my wife and I are talking about starting a family. You know, she has a job that she really likes here. She has a lot of autonomy. And so I went to Anna, my wife, you know, kind of late in 2012 or so. Um, and I just, you know, said, Hey, you know, like, what do you think of this? And I know you don't like winners in Massachusetts. Um, and, uh, you know, what's the scoop? Um, and she's like, you know, I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm somewhat more passionate about your career than I am about mine. You know, we'd, we'd hosted minor leaguers at our house. We went to major league debuts together. Like we watched baseball games together. She was, she was incredibly supportive and it's a good lesson. Like make sure that if you, if you do this, that you have people who are, who are really involved. Um, you know, so that was a, a, a very important time for us. And it led to the hardest decision was like, if we're going to do this, like, you know, Pete, my business partner here in Massachusetts and I need to kind of like figure out how to attack this the right way. Um, and certainly we took our lumps, but you know, he and I went on a spring training trip in 2013. We, we scouted all of Florida. We knew we wanted to stay on the East coast, um, because of, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, like the, not just, you know, being on the same time zone and all that and ease of back and forth, but also, you know, state income tax benefits and finding a place that, you know, we could really, you know, fit in right away. So we, we discovered Jupiter and, and fell in love with it. I have a couple of business partners down there who've been awesome, but you know, what happens is you, 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 you don't necessarily know how your life's going to change when you, you split it between, you know, two separate States. So, you know, the first half of that is, you know, we moved to Florida September 1st, 2014. My wife was seven months pregnant with twins. Um, our facility was two months behind schedule and a hundred thousand dollars over budget. So we got in there November 2nd, 2014. And then we had twins on November 28th, 2014. So I opened a gym and had twins in the same month. So <laughs> I, you don't want to know how much caffeine I consumed that off season to get it off the ground. And, you know, so it's a, you take your licks financially, you take your licks, you know, logistically move your house. You know, I mean, we kept our house in Massachusetts and we bought a house in Florida. So you're managing two different residences, all that side of things. And, 
you know, I think the, the, the challenges with that is just that, you know, we never appreciated how many variables would change when we would, when we moved there. Right. So, you know, my wife realized that she missed her career a lot more than she would have thought. And she's, she's kept it to some degree, but it's, it's toned back. Um, you know, we didn't think about the craziness of moving three, we have three daughters now back and forth between Massachusetts and Florida. And we have to make some hard decisions on the schooling front. Um, so I, I think the, you know, a lot of the stuff there too, is like, you don't make your business decisions like in, in isolation, right? They impact every other aspect of your life and your quality of life is, is hard. And, you know, for me, who's very OCD and very driven, I want this business to be the best it can be. Hmm. It, it inherently, my business can't be the best it's going to be if I want to remain married and be a good dad. Like there are always sacrifices, right? If, if I wanted my business to be the best it could possibly be, I would be here every single minute. I would be here I would do all the sweeping, you know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't hide a clean crew. I do every single aspect. I'd give every sales pitch on the phone, no matter what it took. And you, you have to give, you know, you just, you can't possibly do everything and you have to empower the good people around you. But, um, you know, so that's the hard part for me is finding balance, particularly when we split our year between two facilities and have to make a lot of those tough decisions with respect to my wife's career and where our daughters go to school and, and all those things. So it's, mm. it sounds way more glamorous when you tell somebody like, yeah, I'm a 38 year old snowbird. Um, and like, yeah, but then you realize that, you know, it's a lot of flights back and forth with a screaming baby and, you know, me and the dog drive 23 hours twice a year. Uh, so, you know, those are the things what I think are a little more internal, challenging. What is your internal compass? Like for the, for the listener who's maybe struggling with those kinds of decisions to make something and make a leap, take a leap of faith. What is your internal compass that said to you that, you know, through all of this, this is going to be the, this is going to be all right, or this is going to work out. Um, you know, I don't know that I actually had those moments, like where I took a deep breath, like had to tell myself it's going to be okay. Like I just, I, I power through them. You know what I mean? I just, I, I, I'm, I'm busy and I, I don't, maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's everything that you don't want, like a, a human resources person to hear or something like that. Like, just being honest, I don't want to sit down and talk about my feelings. I, you know, my life is a, unfortunately, sometimes it's a never ending series of never mind. I'll just do it. Um, and, and I, I do well with that. And, and that's, that's different than right now. There's a great book. It was called the best team wins. I, I definitely recommend it to all your readers. But, um, one of the things that they looked at was, was job satisfaction, depending on different parts of the lifespan. They look at baby boomers and if they said baby boomers stay on average at a job, like seven and a half years, and they value autonomy more than almost any other job characteristic. Whereas if they looked at millennial populations, they stayed like 18 months and autonomy ranked incredibly low. They were, they were much more interested in being some part of something bigger than themselves and all that. Like, I love waking up at 5 a.m. and having nobody bother me for the first two hours. I love powering through work, doing things that only I control. And you, know, and you have to reconcile that with being part of a good team and, and leading and all of those things and hiring people that maybe complement those things. But um, autonomy is very, very important to me. So uh, for me, I never have ever felt like I needed those moments where I had to like sit down and talk with someone about my feelings. Um, I always felt like, Hey, these are challenges that we're facing. Let's put them on the table and let's sort them out, but let's be very, very direct. Um, so I, I never felt like there were those, you know, those kind of the moments you alluded to, like, how did you power through them? Like you just did mm -hmm. like life's hard, do it anyway. <laughs> and, and, and that may have been part of what's made us successful in entrepreneurship, but it may be completely ineffective advice for a lot of the listeners here. I just, sure. I can speak to what I do, you know, I think well. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I, I do think, uh, you know, is incredibly important. Um, you know, it's, it's, 
you don't, you know, you know, it's, it's probably a paraphrased like Navy SEAL line or something like that, but it's like, you don't rise to the level of your expectations. You sink to the level of your, your preparation. Um, and, and I think on our end, like I always tell new business owners, like don't create systems for now, create systems that are going to be scalable when you have a hundred employees. Like how do you establish things that are in place? Hey, if you answer all of your emails from your personal email account so that all your coworkers have no idea if something has been, you know, taken care of from the business account, that's a big problem, right? There's, there's a level of confusion. That's something we dealt with in our business was like, Hey, no, if a client reaches out, like don't text them an answer, like reply from the company email. So everybody knows that it's been sorted out. Um, so you have to look at scalability. And I think what we've done really well, and this is a testament to my business partner, Pete in Massachusetts, our director of performance, John O'Neill, um, you know, and in Florida, my wife, Anna, and our director of performance, Tim Jeremini, like they've all really worked hard to create systems um, that, you know, that we can fall back on. Um, and you can trust other people that are doing their work. And there's, there's always, you know, loopholes and things like that where you know, something goes unchecked. But um, I, I look at the systems we've created where you know, I, I don't do anything with respect to our internship program. I, and I, I mean that not in the, in the long term, but in the short term, I don't look at any of the resumes that are submitted. I don't review any of the cover letters. Uh, I don't do any of the interviews. Um, I don't do the orientation. I'm here to continue provide continuing education. I do a ton of the, um, like preliminary, like video stuff, like the onboarding, you know, they go through a 10 week online curriculum, but, but there is zero chance that I will set aside a half an hour of my day to do an internship interview. Like it just doesn't happen. And that's not because I think I'm above it. It's because there are other people who are tasked with that responsibility who do an amazing job of it. And I trust their abilities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a, I mean, that saves me 150 hours a year. Like if, and I used to be involved on all of those, but we've moved past it and we have other people that can do it better than I can. And, you know, I'll be available to those interns to, you know, help with, you know, in services once they're here and, you know, working with them day to day on the fly, but I don't need to be part of the selection process. Um, mm -hmm. so that's, that's something that's changed. It's, it's an example. Um, but there are a lot of other things that, you know, I think we've, we've done a really good job of to, you know, just kind of systematize things to, to free me up to do the things that I'm actually really good at. So how does a guy who's self-admittedly OCD deal with yeah. uh, the uncontrollable um, ignition of two uh, twins? <laughs> um, that's, you know, that's, that's a great point. Uh, actually, my, it probably depends on the day you get this answer. Uh, you know, I, I think I'll tell you this is if my kids are, or our kids, I should say, are bad, it's usually either A, they're tired or B, it's our fault for not paying enough attention to them. And that's, that's, that's something you got to own, you know, like, um, you know, I think one of my biggest challenges in parenting is, is, you know, being where my feet are at, you know, when I come home, it's throw the cell phone in the drawer and, and tune off the world because, Hey, if I walk in the house at five 30 and our daughters go to bed at seven 30, like I, we have two hours together. Like I'm not going to waste that answering text messages and things like that. Um, so I think you have to draw some lines because usually you're, your, your kids are, if your kids are being bad, it's because they want attention. Um, you know, certainly, you know, we have, we have a four and a half year old who is challenging in different capacities. She eats about five things and fights us on it. But, um, I think uh, it always comes back to extreme ownership, you know, like to, to paraphrase the book. Like if you're happy with your business, it's your fault. If an employee does something wrong, it's your fault because you didn't teach them better. If your kids are being bad, it's your fault because you didn't educate them better or you've created a dynamic where they think it's okay to act like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, those are hard, hard things to swallow because you effectively have to admit that you've been doing something wrong. Um, but I, I'll say this, our girls are really, really good. Um, uh, it's testament to my wife. She's a, she's a rock star. And I mean, I, 
I, I watched her breastfeed twins for, for 13 months, which is one of the more superhuman things you could possibly imagine. And then, you know, now we have one, which feels a lot easier comparatively, but you know, life is, life is not easy. It's, it's very, very chaotic. Um, but you know, I, I always come back to like, it's schedule, schedule, schedule. Like, you know, we're, we're talking on August 20th, our flights are already booked for Thanksgiving. We have our rental cars, like, you know, basically booked and we live, we have to live our life four to six months in advance, like, so that we know where our girls are going to school and you know when we're traveling back and forth and all those things. I met your lovely wife in a car ride with you guys. The, that's when we first yeah. met each other and a really wonderful person. And I hope her professional career is still buzzing along. Uh, she was yeah. in the high industry, as I remember. But, um, yeah. you you know, what is her yin to your yang? What is, what is the yeah. counterpoint to you and her? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think we're, you know, we're definitely a scenario of maybe a little bit of opposite track. We're, we're similar in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, I, I definitely think she gives me a hard time for being the eternal optimist sometimes giving people the benefit of the doubt and encouraging me to, to be the bad guy a little bit more. Um, you know, I think I'm a guy who traditionally has maybe avoided some hard conversations I needed to have, whereas she tends to be very, very direct. Um, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, you know, in some cases, uh, I think she's good because she forces me to, to take time I'm off. Um, you know, like for her, she, she doesn't need to be like on all the time, you know, and with respect to her job. Um, although she's an entrepreneur as well. So there's, there's that side of it too. But, um, you know, I, I think she, she is a great compliment to me. Um, you know, I, I think also like I, I respect the heck out of what she does. Like, obviously she, she spends a lot more time with our girls just because of the nature of my job. And, you know, I know that it's not easy dropping everything to, to move to Florida. So your husband can pursue his career. Um, so really from, you know, October 1st through February 15th, that big league off season, like I'm, I work like gangbusters. I go six days a week. Um, you know, we know that Sundays are, you know, you know, non-negotiable family time and, you know, that Saturday afternoons, I'm going to race home as quickly as I possibly can. So I can take the girls to dance class. Like, so you just, you have those kind of agreements Wednesday afternoons or family time. Um, but you know, I, I think she's made a lot of the sacrifices so that, you know, you wouldn't know about Cressy sports performance if it wasn't for Anna Cressy. And, you know, Pete, Pete always jokes that he's the guy behind the guy, but you know, there's a, there's a, there's a very important wife behind the guy too. That's awesome. What's, what was the draw for you? Uh, it sounds like I, I see all these different little uh, ignition points with the shoulder and the, and baseball love and stuff. What, what, what got you into baseball is kind of your specialization is uh, especially as a sport. When you look at the sort of the big four in North America it was probably the one that had the least sort of underpinning of performance training yeah. back 20 years ago. So what, why do you see the opportunity in it, or was it just your love of the game and, yeah, it was, um, it, I mean, first off, it was my own shoulder problems. You know, I, I, I developed some career capital trying to figure out why my shoulder was bad. And it was bad from tennis, but at the end of the day, it's a very similar injury mechanism. You know, in, internal impingement is, you know, very, very common in tennis players, swimmers, cricket, you know, in baseball. So I had, I think, a little bit of a leg up from a knowledge standpoint to, to acquire a pretty good amount of career capital in this space. Um, and it just so happened when I went to the private sector, some of the first guys we worked with were, were high school players and, you know, high school players became college guys, college guys, you know, morph into pro guys and they have teammates and agents. And so word of mouth kind of takes off. But, um, I would say what, what I noticed was, you know, it was, it was a very underserved population. You know, you either had guys that were just handed the football program or you had other ones that were just given the, the foo-foo rehab program. And, you know, we came to realize that you can push these guys incredibly hard as long as you're in tune with their structural deficits, their, you know, their unique demands of their sport, all those things. And, um, you know, I, I think Randy Hetrick from TRX had a great line. He's like, if you want to build a business, solve a problem. 
You know what I mean? And, you know, with him, he founded TRX because he was a, you know, Navy SEAL on a submarine trying to get a workout in. He, you know, loop, <laughs> looped a strap over, a, you know, basically, a, you know, the top of a submarine and did some inverted rows and it was born. Um, and I think we did the same thing. You know, we had a, a population that was not getting what they deserved. Um, and we, we became a competitive advantage for the athlete we trained. And, and certainly it's a much more saturated market right now. And to a large degree, we kind of created the market you know, as, as maybe narcissistic as that might sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think it's something that's, that's been super important. And what's cool is, you know, it, it seems like every day um, we hear about somebody like in the baseball field who started out reading my stuff. And, I, you know, it's funny, I joke about it. Um, actually, The Athletic is a big um, kind of like site that writes a lot about professional sports. And they have a really strong baseball component. And they're running a, a 35 under 35 series. And Max Weiner is a a 24 year old pitching coordinator for the Seattle Mariners. And I just read the article yesterday that like when he was first getting going, he like, you know, hold up and read every article I had ever written as like a foundation thing. And it's awesome. I, I like Max a lot. I'm, I'm psyched that he's doing that. It's, it's cool to see people making so much headway in baseball at such a young age. But like, I, I joked with our, our director of performance, John O'Neill in Massachusetts has a 42 page intern curriculum like this is what we're going to cover this semester we're going to plow through it this is after they've already gone through you know a 10-week online you know onboarding process their initial orientation and stuff and i'm like where the hell was this in 2005 for me i'm like i was like you know trying to like find information wherever i can i was like sitting in on physical therapy classes hoping to just get a nugget here and there and now it's all out there Um, you know, like for, for people to just like feast upon whether they want to go to a seminar, whether they want to, you know, subscribe to some webinars, like you can go online, you can watch James Andrews talk about elbow surgeries. Like it, you look at the ASMI courses and all those, like none of that was there in 2005. So like, to be honest, like this is going to sound like really like kind of cruel. I have no sympathy for people who suck at what they do in our field right now. And like, that's like, you can put, I mean, put, make that a quote, uh, because, there's so much information out there. It's insane. Um, like I, I'm going through Mike Robertson's new certification process. Um, you know, like just, just seeing what's out there. I'm like, Mike, do you realize like how good this is? Like we did building the efficient athlete in 2007 and it was like revolutionary. Um, and you're, you're speaking to like 15 different methodologies that you've been exposed to. Like you've evolved dramatically over these 12 years. Like we didn't have this back then. Like you were, you were just like waiting and waiting for like teenage to come out every Friday afternoon, hitting refresh in hopes of getting like a new, you know, Charles Pollock article or something like that. And so my, my feeling is if you're like a 25 year old who's trying to make like headway in this industry and you don't have your, your nose buried in books, you're not attending conferences, you're not spending your continuing education money on, you know, webinars and online courses and the mentorships available. Like, what are you doing? Like if, if you're, if you're going to do something, be good at it or don't do it. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, I really don't have a lot of, of sympathy for people that, that aren't, you know, really, really invested because there's so much information out there. If you're willing to commit to that hour a day for the first couple of years of your career, like you're in the top 1% without even trying that hard. It's, it's amazing to me. That's awesome. I'm going to use that moment to say you, you said your uh, birthday was uh, May 20th, correct? It is. Okay. So I have this book I call, called The Day You Were Born. It was written by a lady named Linda Joyce, which combines nice. astrology with astrology. So I don't know if you're... I'm a Taurus. You are. You are yeah. a Taurus too. <laughs> your um, purpose is to accept your uniqueness and sensitive emotional nature through your ability to both to use pain and joy as strengths instead of weaknesses. Morality is not properly the doctrine of how we may make ourselves happy, 
but how we make ourselves worthy of happiness. Unable to separate feelings and issues, the Taurus twos can be great unifiers, creative geniuses and healers. My glasses are not working very good for me today. Um, and healers or overwhelmed with emotions and feelings. Venus indulges the moon needs and idiosyncrasies creating an excessive nature. In many cases, it creates a unique soul with a heart of gold, a person who feels the suffering of others and extends a hand to help. But in extremes are all too prevalent here. It's possibly become attached to anything, including sacrifice, pain and suffering too much of anything, even understanding kindness and unconditional love leads to trouble life has to have consequences the Taurus too has to learn to to slam the door yell back and if necessary hit below the 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 belt otherwise they can end up wallowing in suffering acting spoiled or using drugs and alcohol or sex to escape taking responsibility and living a life of discipline when the Taurus two chooses his obsession he can bring himself to to fame fortune and a great sense of personal satisfaction either by creating something unique or helping others wow <laughs> so it sounds like you found your your obsession and you're doing well. yeah yeah i'd say there are parts that i agree with maybe parts that i don't but the last little bit brought it together nicely <laughs> <laughs> there's always a thread there somewhere yep. cool um i want to sort of wrap up here with um, um a sense of what your mission in your life is what what are you trying to or are you trying to accomplish in your life or is there a central mission or is it really just investigating the journey? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, it's changed over the years, right? You're obviously very career driven early on and then, you know, everything changes once you have a wife and kids. Um, so I think like many people, I think the, the mission is balanced. Um, I don't think it's a feasible thing. I'm not a, a, a you know, believer that balance is just something that exists. I think it kind of ebbs and flows, um, throughout the year where you're, you're very productive in your professional life at times and you take a step back and you, you work on, uh, you know, trying to prioritize the family aspect of it a little bit more, uh, particularly as the girls get older and, you know, things like that. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say is, is my mission is to be, uh, more forward thinking, thinking more than three to five years out. Um, you know, right now we, I think we're, we're a little bit too much four to six months out. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, where, where things will, will, I guess, modify in the time to come, um, probably a much greater focus on, on education, on contributing to the body of knowledge. And, um, we have some, some pretty cool stuff planned for that in the next couple months. Um, that was one of the reasons why the, the podcast was, was kind of created was, you know, I thought there were a lot of athletes out there who didn't have access necessarily to the, the resources that we have on a daily basis, the ability to just chat with a big leaguer and hear about how he throws his, you know, split finger fastball or something like that. So, you know, the, the podcast was kind of born out of a, you know, a willingness for me to a educate myself, you know, by having conversations with these guys, but also b, um, you know, get them, you know, to, to share their wisdom with a, with a larger audience. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a big focus for us is, is paying it forward a little bit more. Um, and, and obviously spending way more time with family, um, because I've, I've sacrificed a lot in that regard until now, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I don't necessarily believe in the five and 10 year plans, but I'm doing my best to think a little bit more long-term. Cool. Well, it's been nice spending uh, an hour with you, Eric. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, I wish you the best with whatever it is that you, your life journey takes you on. So, My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. Yeah. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story. 
taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.